Please be seated, accept the kiddos, off you go to the rear, children can head to the back, uh, and as they go back there, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you haven't already, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, in my home, I like to say that uh, heroes are people that do hard things for the right reasons, and uh, I'm thankful and the fact that they are heroes, so uh, I'm sure they don't feel like heroes, they live in a different city and just try to do the same thing we do here, but uh, we love you guys. Thankful that you're taking some time with us. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll open up the Word and get to work. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that redemption is possible. We thank you, Jesus, that you have washed us with your blood. We can know forgiveness. We can know restoration. And so, God, speak to us now about this redemption, that we might walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the late pastor, theologian, philosopher, R.C. Sproul, tells a story uh, of going to his daughter's new school. He, goes, he walks into his daughter's new school, and there's this uh, presentation for all the new parents to describe the school to them. And he's standing there, and the principal comes up and gives this amazing presentation about the school. The principal goes on, and the first he says, he says, this is how a day goes. He said, from 9 o'clock to about 9.17, they do this. And from 9.17 to 10.38, they do this. And then he on, on, on he goes to the rest of the uh, day. And he accounts for every minute of the day. And at the end of it, the principal says to the parents, any questions? And all the parents sort of laugh, right? This amazing presentation, there would be any questions at all. Well, of course, our brother, if you know him, R.C. Sproul, would raise his hand and ask him a question. And Sproul asked the principal a very simple question, but profound. He said, thank you for this presentation. It's incredibly impressive. But can you tell me, principal, what is all of this building towards? What kind of person are you seeking to form in all of this? The principal, he says, his face goes sheet white and he pauses. He's silent for a moment, doesn't have an answer quickly. His face then begins to turn red and then he uh, says back to Sproul, he said, I've never been asked that question before, and I don't have an answer. Sproul responds back to him and says, well, I respected you before, but now I respect you even more because you're honest. At least you're honest. But at the same time, principal, I'm terrified as to what you're doing to these children. If you don't know where all of this is going. They had a good answer for every minute of the day. Their education was well received. However, they didn't even have an answer as to what kind of person they were seeking to form. And so if you were to ask me a similar question, Nathan, tell me about your church. There's a membership introduction this afternoon. We say, Nathan, tell me about this church. And I were to walk you through. This is what we do on Sundays. And we normally do this. And then we have community groups. And then we do this. We encourage people to have discipling relationships. And they normally do this or that. And then you were to ask the same question Sproul asked. Well, Nathan, what kind of person are you seeking to form in all of these things? My answer would be our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. And here's what God's Word says. In Him, you have redemption. Through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ 
has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You'll note there in verse seven, that's sort of not sort of it is. That's how redemption comes. Second half of verse seven into verse eight describes where the wealth of that redemption comes from. And verse nine to ten describes what redemption is. That is to say where it's all going. That's sort of an outline if you want to follow through as I'll walk through today. Verse 7, how redemption comes. Verse Second half of verse 7, into 8, where the wealth of that redemption comes from. Verse 9 and 10, what redemption is, where it's all going. So first off, verse 7, how does redemption come? Well, the answer clearly there in verse 7 is in him. Through his blood. Who's the him, you ask? Good question. Christ is the answer. Clearly, we see this littered already all through this letter. We see this in, through, or for, or by Christ all through this letter. Go back, take a look at verse 1. You can see there that the Ephesians are faithful in Christ. Uh, Verse 3, they are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, they are chosen in Him, in Christ. Verse 5, in love, Christians are predestined for adoption through Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of God's glorious grace, which He has blessed the believer in the Beloved, that is, in Christ. How does all of this redemption work that they've been talking about? Verse 7, in Him. In Christ. Redemption means to buy back. To buy back. Sort of a familiar word to most of us in our week. Uh, We can think about redemption happening in movies, right? The antagonist does something bad. The protagonist comes back and somehow gets redemption. They restore their name, right? They overcome the antagonist. We we can think about this word being used in sports, right? Where uh, one team gets beaten badly by one team and then that team comes back on another game or another moment and they get redemption. That is to say they restore their good name by overcoming that other team. They bring back peace. They bring back order. They restore their name. By purchasing it back. And that's what redemption is. Most notably, most importantly, the greatest redemption of all. Restoring or bringing back uh, the glory of God's name on earth as it is in heaven. Redemption comes in Him. In Christ. And so since since it comes in Christ, we then can conclude that redemption is not possible in something or someone else. So true redemption cannot be had by Muhammad. True redemption cannot be, cannot be had by obedience to the Torah. True redemption cannot be had uh, by Buddha, by Marxism, by capitalism, or by humanism. Or another way of saying that is cosmic restoration, since that's what this passage is about, you can see that in verse 10, does not come through politics, does not come through other world religions, nor does it come through the might of mankind. None of those things can bring about ultimate redemption in the world. Therefore, none of us should place hope in them to find true and ultimate redemption. The only hope for true redemption, which is restoration, is in Him, in Christ. And yes, friend, that is an exclusive claim. And no, it is not arrogant. For two reasons. One, acknowledging what is real is not arrogant. It's wise. I'm not arrogant for saying that this is a podium. I'm not arrogant for saying that this is a shirt or that is a chair. I'm only acknowledging what's real. To do otherwise would to be foolish. But secondly, it's not arrogant to say that Christ is the only way for redemption if by arrogant you mean that being exclusive is arrogant. Friend, everyone makes an exclusive claim. Everyone does. 
everyone makes an exclusive claim from the Orthodox Jew to the Orthodox Muslim or the consistent atheist or agnostic. They all make exclusive claims. And yes, even the universalist who claims that there's one way of thinking about all religions, that too is an exclusive claim. We can't get away from it. We all make exclusive claims. The question is, here's the question, is it true? That's the question that has to be asked. Everyone makes exclusive claims. The question is, which one of them is true? They all cannot be true because they all make distinctive claims. Muhammad and Buddha say very different things. Very different things about the world. Jesus and Nietzsche say very different things. They can't both be true. And we as Christians believe that Christ is the truth. He is the truth. He says as much when He tells us in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man come to to the Father but through Me. But also, if the Bible claims redemption is in Him, as it does in this verse, then it cannot also be in something else. If it is, as Paul reasons in Galatians 2.21, then Christ died for no purpose. Which is to say, God was incredibly wasteful in giving us His Son. Redemption, friend, is possible. But it is only possible in and through Christ. The reality is, we all want redemption, don't we? Everybody does. Everybody wants redemption. How can you not want redemption? Just take a look around. Watch your Facebook feeds. I'm sure they blew up this week. Twitter feeds. I'm sure they were all over the place, right? We watch that. We see people groaning and grieving. We are tired, aren't we, of hurricanes and cancer and senseless violence. We're tired of sexual and verbal abuse. We're tired of racism and sexism that continues. We're tired of divorce and and depression and poverty. We want redemption. Every country you visit, they want redemption in some way, shape, or fashion. But for most of them, it's a mystery. They might have some ideas, but they don't really know what redemption is and how they can truly find it. But this is not the case for Christians. Redemption, as it says there in verse 9, has been made known to us. It has been made known to us. Now, you may then be asking, friend, if you're not a Christian, well, does that mean that we are better, that Christians think themselves better than everyone else since they know redemption in ways that most of the world doesn't and it's a mystery to them? Does that mean that we think that we're better? better? Of course not. Just again, read this verse. The Christian's entire claim is grace. Is grace. That's exactly what this verse says. We have redemption. We know redemption because of the riches of God's grace. Do you see that there? It's right there in the passage in verse 7. By the power of the Spirit, not because we are saved, not because we are uh, really religiously obedient, because the reality is we are not. The knowledge of redemption came to the Christian by grace, not by anything in us. Which means grace means we receive something that we did not deserve in any way, shape, or form. Redemption is only in Christ and it comes by grace to the believer. Now, how does redemption in Christ come exactly, you then might ask? Well, it comes, we see there, look down in verse 7 again, it comes through His blood. It comes through, it's in Him through His blood. It's not by our intellect, it's not by our sweat, it's not by our tradition or our birthright. It's through Christ's blood. Now, blood there is just another way of referencing Christ's atoning work on the cross. 
So in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood that was shed on the cross. Uh, we know from uh, teaching of Scripture, Leviticus 8.17 makes this super clear. The reason why blood is being mentioned is because life is in the blood. And so therefore, the shedding of blood needed to be given. And if we were going to have redemption, we're going to have new life. And the reality is, we needed new life because we're all dead in our sins. Jesus talks about this in John 8. We as a church thought about this a few weeks ago. John 8, Jesus says that all those who make a practice of sinning are enslaved to sin, which is all of us apart from Christ. So if you think that you're not enslaved to sin in some way, shape, or form, just try this week and go and obey the Ten Commandments for just a week. See how you do. Right? I, won't, I wouldn't make it a few minutes probably. I don't know. But you can't do it. The point is, we're all, apart from Christ, enslaved to our sin. Mankind needs redemption at the root of that sin. We need to be bought out of our slavery, which is why God sent His Son. That's why He came. To redeem us, to purchase us out of our slavery to sin. This is the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Christ lived the sinless life. He did not fail in any way, shape, or form. He upheld the law, as it were. And He shed His blood as an acceptable sacrifice. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, what is happening on the cross, the reason why the cross is so important to Christians is because that cross is the point of purchase, the point of redemption, wherein His shedding of the blood for those that believe is paid for, it's purchased. Because He's the only one that offers a righteous and holy sacrifice. His shedding of that blood makes the payment for the sinner that believe, and so He is buried on the third day rises again. And those that turn from sin and trust in Him, they have redemption, they have new life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross. And I want you to notice what Paul then says next in verse 7. He says we have redemption through His blood. Note that he kind of just keeps going on. The forgiveness, another way of saying this he might say, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So to say redemption in Scripture is, to, is the same thing as to say the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of trespasses meaning that don't lose sight of this meaning that for redemption to happen we need to have sin atoned for and that's what jesus did jesus dealt with the root of the world's problem at the cross this is exactly why friend every other worldview falls short because it doesn't go deep enough to the root of sin political worldviews only deal with government educational based worldviews only deal with our intellect Religious worldviews only deal with our ability to kind of will ourselves to obey. Similarly, humanistic worldviews only deal with humanity's ability to figure it all out. And not one of them go deep enough to the root. See, there's something below our wills and our intellects that needs redemption. And that is our hearts. We need new hearts. And by new hearts, I mean the center of our thought, our will, and our actions. The center of what makes us us. What causes us to feel and causes us to say things, to like, to dislike things. That has to be dealt with if redemption is going to happen. So we are sinners, friends, not because we have sinned. No, we sin because at the heart of us, we're sinners. And that has to be dealt with if redemption is going to come. And so in love, Christ sheds His blood. He pays the penalty of those sins and then gives us new life by giving us His heart, His righteousness, His record by grace through faith. That's how it happens. 
This all happened, though. We see there, moving on in the passage in verse 7, this all happened, this redemption happens to the believer according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This happened according to the riches of God's grace. So the image here is sort of like a man that owned the Atlantic Ocean. Right? Our city uh, has been set ablaze by our own foolish decisions. And the man that owns the Atlantic Ocean comes and just pours bucket after bucket after bucket on that fire that we started. And he sets it off and we say, thank you. And we then say to him again, thank you. And he says, well, let me show you the abundance of my water. And he takes us to Bethany Beach and we look out over the Atlantic Ocean. And after all of that water that he lavished on that city to put out the fire, it doesn't even look like he took any water. That's the image. God's abundant riches and wealth of his grace. He lavishes upon us, lavishes upon us. How kind of God to be so abundant. Verse seven says, according to the riches or the wealth uh, or the abundance of his grace. In other words, like the water in the Atlantic Ocean, God overflows with his grace. He lavished or he poured on us the grace of redemption, which is the forgiveness of don't lose sight of that. All our sins, all our trespasses. And so Christian, you need to take note of the tense of verse 7. If you have a pencil, you're going to want to write this down. You're going to want to circle that in your Bible. Underline it. Print it off. Put it on your mirror. Look at it every day. You have redemption. You have it. Present tense active. You have it. This is not something that you might have, Christian. This is not something that you can enjoy if you obey him good enough this week. You are his adopted son or daughter. Verse 5 of chapter 1. You have every spiritual blessing. That's secured. Verse 3. In Christ, you are faithful. Verse 1. You are blessed in the beloved. Verse 6. And in Christ, verse 7, you have redemption. It's yours. You have it. God does not need you to go out and perform it or to earn His love. You already own it in Christ. Christ knew whom He died for. Don't think that He didn't know that. Don't think that He just sort of went to the uh, cross thinking that I hope this will work out so people will actually trust this stuff. No, He knows exactly what He was doing. When He died, He knew He was not uh, bringing about the possibility of salvation. He was affecting salvation for those of whom He foreknew. And he forgave all of those sins. Your forgiveness was secured. All of your sins was secured 2,000 years ago. You are redeemed. You, made, you have been made his child in love. And so if he is perfect, and he is, and if he chose you before the foundation of the world, which he did, and if he in love predestined you for adoption as a son and daughter, which he did, and if he redeemed you at the cross, therefore you have redemption. You have it. You have faithfulness and love. You can't lose it since you never authored it to begin with. And love, it was transferred to you by grace through Jesus. It's yours to enjoy, Christian. And listen, it's your identity. It's the most important part of who you are. I love thinking about this. I, by the way, I seek permission from the Thorntons to keep using Jaden like this. But Jaden was adopted. Uh, if you're not familiar, Jaden is an adopted child into uh, one of the members of our church. And you think about this. Jaden was redeemed on April the 19th, 2018. 
There's plenty of days, I'm sure, as Jaden grows up, he's going to look at his biological brother, Jonathan, and think, I don't look like him. I don't feel redeemed by the Thorntons. But the reality is his last name is Thornton. And the reality is no matter how he feels, the reality is he's a Thornton and no one and no, nothing can take that apart from him. He might feel like he's not a Thornton, but he is. You might not feel like a Christian, but if your hope and faith is in Christ, you are redeemed. Live there. That's your identity. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are adopted. You are faithful in Christ. You don't have to earn it every week. Christ earned it for you in his life, death, and resurrection. It is yours by grace through faith in him. And then it moves on in verses 8 and 9. Take a look at there. This is how it got connected to you. Verses 8 and 9. God granted you, Christian, wisdom and insight to see it. By grace through faith, He gave you eyes to see and to savor that redemption. There are plenty of people that know about the truths of the Gospel. But they don't see it and savor it. The evil one's this way, right? He knows what Jesus is and does. I mean, he knows those facts better than all of us. But the reality is he does not see it and savor it. He gave you, by his grace, through uh, working through his lavished abundance, he gives you knowledge of wisdom and insight. He's made it known, verse 9. He's made it known to you. He's given you wisdom. You can see it. And insight, I now understand it. He has, quote then, verse 9, made it known. So the image here is, is likened to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. The eyes of our hearts, the eyes of humanity in sin is covered up. They can't see it. You can explain it. This is the difference, by the way, why I can preach the same sermon and some of you will go, boring. You know, nothing, right? And then some of you will be like, that was amazing because God is working in you to see it and to savor these truths, these realities. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about the fact that there's a veil over our hearts that can't see, and that's most of the world. And yet God in His grace lifts us so that you can then see and to savor Christ forever and ever. Amen. That's what he's referencing here with this uh, wisdom and insight, making known to us. And he knew, by the way, when he uh, gave you the eyes to see and to savor him, to give you wisdom and insight, to make you know this plan of redemption, he knew how messy you were when he revealed that to you. Remember, he knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew how messy you are. He knew about all of those kinds of things, but that did not stop him. We, we see in this verse, you look down there in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. We'll get to that in a second. According to his purpose. If you were here last week, we talked about this. That word purpose, if you want a, a better translation, and I am, that's a pretty arrogant statement. That is true. It's a better translation. We can go look at the Greek later if you want to. The word there should be pleasure. According to his pleasure. His joy. He was so happy to do this. So happy. He lavished upon you and had joy in giving this so that you would trust Him and savor Him forever and ever. Amen. Two brief applications here, guys. Two brief applications. One for those of you that are trusting in Christ. One and the other for those of you that are not trusting in Christ. So first, for those of you that are trusting, Paul is writing to remind the church in Ephesus because he knows they forget it. I mean, you think about it. He taught this church quite well. It's not like they were reading this for the first time going, huh, didn't know that about adoption. See, but he knew that they forget it. So he's writing them to remind them of these truths. And I realize that so many of you spend so much time rehearsing when you get it wrong. You need to take more time to rehearse that Jesus got it right. Forever and always for you. Don't spend so much time rehearsing all that you've done wrong. Or spend more time 
rehearsing how Christ got it right. Love that line from one of the old saints that says, was it McShane that says, you know, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Remind that. Christian, you are defined by your sin no more. You are not defined by your job, by your marriage status, by how your marriage is going. You're not defined by your bank account or by whatever category the media wants to put you in. You are who you are in Christ. You, are, you have been redeemed by His blood. You've been in love, adopted into His family. He's lavished grace upon you with the full knowledge of who you are. You are His and He is yours. And Christian, if you don't do this, if you don't rehearse these truths for yourselves, listen, I can make you a promise. Somebody else is going to try to form you and fashion you in their identity for you. So you've got to work hard at this. Forming and fashioning your identity in Christ. Understanding your redemption. Understanding this verse. It would be a great verse to memorize. Chapter 1, 3 to 14. Just memorize all of that and rehearse it for yourself every day. Because again, there are all kinds of people that are trying to form you into their own image. If you're to get to the end of this letter in Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see Paul talks about this armor that we have to put on every day. Because there are fiery darts from the evil one that are coming. And the shield of faith, he says, is what extinguishes those fiery darts. Those fiery darts are meant to talk about lies from the evil one. And some of you have been wounded by those darts far too many times. You didn't get your shield up in time. And you live in those wounds. Well, friend, put on your helmet of salvation. Put on your breastplate of righteousness. Put on your belt of truth, your gospel shoes of peace. and Put up that shield of faith and extinguish those darts every day. I love this line from George Mueller that says uh, that he makes it his, uh, he makes it his uh, uh, priority to wake up every day and make his soul happy in the Lord. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. You've got to make that a priority. If you're going to have life and joy in Christ and live in the victory of Christ, you've got to wake up and remind yourself that you have redemption by the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of all of your sins. And for you that are not currently trusting in Christ, You can see there in verse 7 that redemption comes to the we. You see it? The ones that are in Him. Meaning, if you are not in Him, you don't have redemption. Which means your sins are not forgiven. Which means that since you don't trust Christ alone to forgive them, you are left to pay for them yourself. And what's wrong in the world is our sin. God in His infinite justice must punish uh, that sin. And so either you trust Christ to pay it with His life, or you will trust, you'll have to trust yourself to pay for it yourself. John 3.36 makes this super clear. Either you trust Christ alone to pay the infinite price of your sin, or you are left to bear it yourself. An infinite punishment because it is done against an infinitely holy God. And I realize that by saying that, by telling you that if you don't trust in Christ alone, you'll suffer infinitely apart from Him. You heard Ryan talk about that friend that struggles with that idea. That's a true and real thing. I get that. But you may be thinking that by me telling you that, I'm not loving you. But friend, I'm trying to love you. I'm standing here. If this is true, and it is, the redemption is only in Christ, and I don't tell you that, then I would not be loving you. You see that? It would be the most terrible thing in the world if God has made known to me the mystery of His will. He's given me wisdom and insight to know what redemption is and what it is not. And if you don't have it, I have it and I don't tell you. No, it's to love you is to tell you. 
So I'm pleading with you to trust Christ. To turn from your sin and to look to Jesus alone. Be born again by a new and living hope. By looking to Christ alone to save you. Don't trust your obedience. Don't trust your religion. Don't trust your own set of doctrines. Turn from sin and trust Christ alone to redeem you. The redemption that you want is in Him. It's not found in the world. It's not found in you. It's found in Him. You're going to stay empty forever and ever if you don't get this right. By God's grace, look to find redemption and life in Him. That emptiness is going to remain unless you trust Christ and live for Christ. But if you trust Christ as Lord, He's going to give you the redemption that you need. He's going to give you love and grace and truth and forgiveness all found in Jesus. Now to be clear, listen, you trust in Jesus, I'm not going to tell you your life is going to be easy. If I'm honest enough to tell you that if you don't trust Him, you'll go to an everlasting punishment, I also want to tell you that if you trust in Jesus, your life is probably going to get harder on this earth. That's what Jesus said. I'm trying to love you by letting that be known to you, friend. Trust in Him. I promise you that His grace is rich. His love never fails. And I promise you that He will give you a home with Him. And so look to Jesus. Trust His blood to save you from sin and to His grace. And be welcome into the family of God. Your salvation is a big part of what He's doing to redeem the world. And so let's think a little more about that, shall we? This final plan. What redemption is. Look down there in verse 9 again. And notice how the Lord lavished grace upon us that believe. Where with all wisdom... And insight, God made known to us the mystery of His will. What's that mystery, you say? Well, it is set forth or it is revealed in Christ. Now, that much should not surprise us. Christ is at the heart of all things. But verse 10, here it is. There's that mystery. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite, not some things, all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So things in heaven, that's where God is. Things on earth, that's where man is. God and man together again in His very good creation where it was all meant to be. And this was all in, through, and for Christ. So this is what I meant earlier when I said that redemption is restoration. What mankind destroyed, God was and is making right in Christ. In Christ, God is redeeming or restoring the world through His blood. I think Al Walter says this, book, this says this best in his book, Creation Regained. He says, what was formed in creation has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed or redeemed in Christ. What was formed in creation has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. See, Christ's friend not only dies for sin, he rises for sin. Jesus' resurrection not only reveals that His blood sacrifice was received, not only that forgiveness is possible, His resurrection also previews the totality of His redemption. Redemption in the Gospel weds the spiritual and the physical. It brings back together what was torn apart by sin. That is, through the blood of Christ, the heart of the problem of our world is dealt with. Therefore, God is able to live with His creation once again, making it very good again. And this is the mysterious plan for the ages that God has given Christians wisdom and insight to see. We now have eyes in Christ. We now have eyes to see the final chapter. We have confidence that the world that we all want will be realized in Christ. That God and man will dwell together in a restored earth forever and ever. Amen. 
It's just a little, little wisdom about this, or just maybe some insight to kind of give you some context of where I'm drawing this from. First off, I think it's right there in the text of chapter 1, verse 10. But also, think about Jesus' model prayer. Do you remember what he said? Our Father who is in heaven, hallow your name. Make it hallowed. Where? On earth, as it is where? In heaven. Bring heaven to earth. We can think, too, about uh, Jesus' short parable, Matthew 13, 33. Shortest parable in the Bible. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like leaven that a woman uh, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In other words, Christ's coming, living, dying and raising was the invasion of earth from heaven. It was the initial leaven or the initial heaven into the flour of the earth. That was Jesus's coming. That's why the angels, by the way, are so excited. and They're praising. All right, here it is. The, the, the leaven's getting into the flour. It's starting to knead now. Here it comes. All the plan that God has planned from eternity past to eternity future, it's starting to now get uh, accomplished. So as more and more people from every tribe, tongue, and nation submit to the Lordship of Christ, trust Him, obey all that He's commanded, the more that leaven works its way into the flour until eventually in the fullness of time, the leaven will have worked its way all the way into the entirety, that is, all the way through the earth, And Christ returns, completes His victory by coming down from heaven once again. Only this time when He comes, He ain't coming alone. He's coming with the host of heaven. And He will send those that do not trust Him and been changed by His grace to an everlasting punishment. And He sends believers to heaven on earth. This is the mystery that God is working out. I will give you words of that. Let me read for you the end of the Bible. Here it is. The uniting of heaven and earth in Christ together. Right at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Here's what it says. This is just the working out of all of this. The uniting of heaven and earth in Christ. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, this is John looking into the future prophetically, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, where is it coming? Coming where? Down. Down. Out of heaven from where? From God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's exactly what we just saw in Ephesians 1.10. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Slide down to verse 22 of that same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city. In other words, now there's no more temple, no physical structure there in the center as there would have been in the Old Testament days. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Father, Son there. And verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is Jesus, is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's those of whom Christ redeemed. And we slide down to chapter 22, look at verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, that's us. Spirit, we're the bride. We're saying, come, please, come on, do this. Please come. Spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears. Right. This is the same notion of being given wisdom and insight to know this plan. And the one who hears uh, says, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life. So good right here without price. What's that mean? Grace. Grace. Slide down to the last couple of verses of the entire Bible. Here it is. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus talking. I am coming soon. And we say in response, what? Come, Lord Jesus, come, please come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. And this is why, by the way, the Bible always talks about the we are living in the last days or or he's coming soon. All these things, because this is the final chapter of redemption. Just look at the Bible. You see it? This is it. So so all this stuff has happened. Ephesians 1.10. The only thing left to happen is this. So that's why this could happen at any time. It could happen by the end of this service. It could happen by the end of this sentence. It didn't, but it might. It might. This is the final chapter. Christ is secured. It's all done. We wait for him to come back where heaven and earth will be united forever and ever. There will be no need of sun nor moon. The glory of God will shine so brightly in this city. Those rays coming through this redeemed city, those rays coming in, that's going to be the glory of Christ. There's going to be no pain, no death, no tears. Nothing but infinite joy. Why? Because Christ is here. He is real. He is living. Just as we see in the Garden of Eden. Walking in the cool of the day with the Lord. That's happening here. Restored world. For the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The uniting of heaven and earth. That's our hope. That's redemption. Because redemption is restoration. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Ephesians to be reminded of. God and man dwelling together yet again. We can see it in Ephesians 1. Go back to Ephesians 1 briefly. Look there in verse 22 uh, and 23. It says there, and he put all things under his feet, that's Christ, and gave him as head over all things, who? To the church. We read about that in Revelation. Which is his body. This restoration church is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, the glory of God will so soak this new and restored world that we'll just see it oozing out of everything. He'll be so full here. The dwelling place of God is a man. This is the fullness plan for the fullness of time. The mystery that is hidden to so many to unite all things in heaven and earth together in Christ. And beloved, this is the hope to which we have been called. This is our inheritance. This is where we are going. This is our destiny. Therefore, it is our identity. Adopted sons and daughters who have been, are, and will be redeemed. A place at the table. One to God and one to one another by the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, destined to receive the inheritance of a fully restored world that is soaked with the glory of God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, these realities are so great and so total to us as Christians. How on earth can we even begin to apply them? Now. Probably be the best thing to say. Just Let's just pray and sing, right? But let me try two brief applications to us. First off, Restoration Church, in light of the coming reality of the uniting of heaven and earth, let us be a colony of heaven in the country of earth. Let us be a colony of heaven in the country of earth. See, after meditating on these amazing realities for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul transitions. Look, you can flip over there, see it. In Ephesians 4.1, he then says, Therefore, in light of all this stuff, a prisoner for the Lord, urge, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. In other words, be a preview of coming attractions. Be heaven on earth, Restoration Church. Some of you have been, a lot of you have probably been to Mount Vernon, seen George Washington's estate. And you see what life is like in the past. The church is supposed to be the opposite. We're supposed to be a community that people can visit and see what life will be like in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we're supposed to be. Our lives, our dreams, our lifestyles, our finances, our bodies, our time. It's different than the rest of the world. We're citizens of heaven now. God is our Father. Christ is our Lord. Grace, mercy, and love, they're ours. Forgiveness has been granted. We have a family. We have every spiritual blessing. The Spirit dwells within us now. That doesn't mean, to be clear, we're perfect. So if you're visiting our church, not perfect. Not perfect. Not perfect. Fail often. And so do these guys from time to time. I love them, though. We're going to work this out as best we can. We're going to love and forgive each other and try to get it right. Try to be the colony of heaven on earth. Try to be that preview of coming attractions. Try to be mankind out in front of time. This is the one place where we should be able to mourn and lament the brokenness of this world. This is the one place we should be able to have a place at the table for folks. To get to know each other. This should be the one place that we should be able to come and remind ourselves that soon enough, we're going to be home. The end is always uh, the best part for every Christian. Second application. Final as I close. That if God has made known to us the mystery of His will, redemption in Christ, the uniting of heaven and earth, since we have been given wisdom and insight to know the plan in Christ which remains, uh, that's coming forward, and since it remains a, victor, uh, a mystery to most of the world, would it not then be a good stewardship of that knowledge to make it known to others? In other words, if it's still a mystery to the throngs, and since God has ordained not only the ends, but also the means, and the means is you and me spreading the good news of this mystery, since He has made that known to you, would it not be good stewardship for us to tell them so that it's not a mystery to them anymore? Now, you don't know if God's going to open up their heart and eyes, uh, eyes of their hearts and minds to see that, but it's only your responsibility to tell them. It's God's work to open their eyes to see it. So is it not good stewardship for us to spread this gospel and try to make it less a mystery as we possibly can by His grace and for His glory? See, if you're anything like me, evangelism, discipleship can feel like this obligation, this thing that we kind of have to do. It can feel like we're kind of intruding on people's lives. But when we see the gospel as a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
things in heaven and on earth together in Christ, when we see it that way, can't you see it's a gracious invitation into redemption? Not just rude intrusion into people's lives. Why not see it that way and love others by revealing it to them since God has revealed it to you? By telling them the Gospel. Is it going to fall on deaf ears? Probably. Possibly violent ones? Possibly. You've heard about Ryan's testimony of those people that know it, and yet they still go. Because too many don't know. It's still a mystery to them. See, what if your lips were the ones that God used to open the eyes of a new believer to the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus? What if it was your lips to their ears that God gave their eyes of those people's hearts to see? What if you were the one to connect all the dots of the redemption for somebody? What if you were that one? If you would just but be courageous enough to tell them, what do you have to lose? Right? They, they might kill you. So what? To live as Christ dies gain, right? We're prepared to die. They're not. We know the end of the story. And I promise you, there are people in our city that are looking for it. They want redemption. Maybe not the kind of redemption that is found in Christ, but so many, everybody in all the world wants redemption. And that's where we get to help to connect the dots of God's plan of redemption uh, in Christ to them. And so will you. Will you hold out the hope of restoration and tell them that in Christ there is redemption, the forgiveness of all of their sins? Will you, will you respond to God's grace by telling others that heaven on earth is real? It's possible. I think Ryan and Elizabeth has modeled this well for us. The opportunities are endless. There are entire cities, entire families, they could testify to this, that don't know, they've never heard. Many here have heard at least the story. There are people in their city that have never heard. So maybe for you, your place to respond to the sermon is to go talk to them after this service and say, can you just tell me a little bit more about what life is like in Central Asia? Maybe that's a good way for you to respond. Maybe your, your part is to have a family, have children even, and raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord that they would know people and teach the gospel to others. Maybe adopt children. There, as we talked about last week, there are hundreds of children in the foster care system in D.C. alone that have no father or mother. Maybe your place is to love them, bring them into your home, tell them about adoption that they would then know. Difficult though it is. Maybe you'll be the one to tell that family member, that friend, that classmate, that colleague, Yeah, raise your hand in class. Tell your professor. Be courageous. Maybe they'll believe. Tell them that the hope of redemption is real, that forgiveness is possible. Maybe you'll be the one that will stick close to somebody and love them. Show them that true Christianity is not what politics, empty religion, or the media makes it out to be. True Christianity is found in Christ lived out in the context of messy people in the life of a church trying to make their way to heaven by the grace of God. Tell them God has broken into the world. He is making it new and He will make it new. And you'll do that. You'll make disciples. You'll testify to the truth. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Everything that has lasting value is hard. Everything. We see that in the price of our redemption and the blood of Christ. 
So what kind of person is Restoration Church seeking to mold? These kinds of people. People changed by grace to the glory of Christ that is seeking to be a people restored to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And all that that means and all those implications. That's what we're trying to do. And I pray that we would give ourselves to this great end for the glory of God in Christ, hoping that soon enough Christ will return and we will have heaven and earth united together again. Lord God Almighty, we do thank You for this plan. We are so glad to know, God, that we are not at the center of Your plans as if You are waiting on us. But Christ is Your plan. And He is working it out. And God, we thank You for the privilege of being part of that plan by testifying to the truth. But Lord, our hope is in Jesus. And we pray, Lord God Almighty, in the midst of all of the hurt and the pain that we live with here, that the fullness of time would be soon. And until then, may we find ourselves at work for Your glory.